if you're doing business with the Congo for 25 years, obviously, you know what's going on there. But they just don't consider it their responsibility to care. No. So I think I, and, and, and I think that's something we really want to change. Justice plays an important role. I consider this tribunal a false tribunal and indictments, false indictments. Such abhorrent crimes must not go unpunished. Proceedings will be long and complex. All rise. So Janet, hi. Hi. When I was running around chasing after Myanmar delegations and having a really busy December news-wise, uh, Janet, you managed to get a very interesting interview in. I'm really sorry, Stephanie, but I just couldn't you know, not do it, not when it was right here on our doorstep here at Humanity Hub. And it was about how to get corporations possibly in the dock for war crimes? It was this uh, time that, uh, very unfortunately for the EWCHR, the European Centre for Constitutional and Human Rights, everybody was absolutely and entirely, the whole world was focused on Myanmar. And they launched a big report that they'd done. Uh, Miriam Sagamas, who's the head of their business and human rights programme, was here along with activists from Yemen. Um, and they were really looking, they've been looking for a while about how you can get strategic litigation going on getting accountability for things like this huge humanitarian disaster that's going on in Yemen, where you've got bombing campaigns, thousands of people killed, and going on for years. Um, and she wanted to see whether you can try to get the heads of the arms companies, who are based in Europe, Europe European countries are members of the ICC, the International Criminal Court, whether you can get them to be held responsible at the court. Um, so really, like, wow, how on earth do you do that? Yeah. I've been really interested uh, to hear more about this, the way of getting corporations responsible and also just the Yemen conflict. Uh, I've heard so much about it, but I don't know so much. Also, I also had to look up the background. So um, I'll do the Stephipedia, where Yemen has been in conflict since the Iran-aligned Houthis ousted the government of President, and now I'm going to totally butcher this name, President Abdrabu Mansour Hadi in late uh, 2014. And so we're talking now six years. Six years, and ever since, the Saudi-led uh, military coalition has fought to restore Hadi, and um, that caused a lot of... Uh, there's a lot of fighting and a lot of uh, um, humanitarian uh, disaster because of it. The United Nations calls it the world's biggest humanitarian crisis with now millions on the edge of starvation. So I asked uh, Miriam when she was here to sit down with me and to tell me to start with how she actually went and approached the ICC, what, what her communication was about. What we have been doing, we've been looking at European arm, arms trading companies for the last couple of years, and we've been um, trying to analyze, so what kind of weapons are they exporting to which countries and to which situations and how are those arms being used? And um, we've been coming across um, the situation in Yemen, where a lot of uh, European manufactured arms are being used, in particular in the air warfare. So you're meaning bombs, bombs being dropped and, from um, above? And, and fighter jets that are dropping the bombs. And generally what we do as an organization, we, we are looking at cases where we think those, uh, the facts are strong enough and you can bring a reasonable legal argument 
for actually also legal responsibility of the actors involved. So that gets straight into it. What are the legal arguments involved? Because it's a bit convoluted to somebody like me. To uh, commit war crimes, usually you need weapons, no? And the question is, so but where do those weapons come from? And why do we not talk about this? You know, sort of that's more from this very, um, you know, a, a non-legal uh, uh, question, no? Um, and then uh, the legal concept we're thinking is, well, if you're providing the means for warfare and the means for potentially also uh, the commission of war crimes, could, you not, could that not be framed as uh, aiding and abetting? Um, as giving assistance to the main perpetrator of the crime. I'm not a specialist on aiding and abetting, and I know that there has been a lot of discussion over it, particularly after some of the judgments, the appeals judgments that have come through. Is it, um, in your legal opinion, is it a low threshold? Is it quite a high threshold at the ICC? I mean, what do you need for aiding and abetting nowadays? Um, yeah, so of course the International Criminal Court statute it has a, a very high, comparatively high standards for aiding and abetting, and um, that is something we've been wrestling with. But so it's um, it's twofold, right? So one is the actus reus. So what is actually in there? You need to be showing or ask yourself: Has uh, there been a substantial contribution to the commission of the main crime? No? So you first of all need a main crime and perpetrators that have been committing this. Potentially, those are the um, military of, the, of Saudi Arabia and their coalition in Yemen. Those are the main perpetrators. So we've got a lot, I can imagine, on the ground. There are loads of reports. Oh, exactly. Everybody can see who's been bombing what where. You've even got some precision Ex- on some of those things. Exactly. And also in our communication, we've been singling out 26 incidents of uh, civilian uh, civilians being targeted or other targets um, that are uh, definitely um, uh, uh, pres- shielded by international humanitarian law as not uh, qualifying as legitimate objects of um, of warfare. So we've got those. You know, there's quite some evidence on the commission of war crimes by the Saudi-led coalition. And then the question is, what is a substantial contribution to those crimes? And um, the ICC doesn't, uh, and the jurisprudence there doesn't give us too much. Um, so we've been looking into, um, we've been scanning jurisprudence since the Nuremberg trials. Wow, all the way back. All the way back. And well, why? Why the Nuremberg trials? Is that because, if I remember correctly, there were some heads of some corporations who were yeah, on trial? So, so I think, and I think that's also quite important to see that uh, if you want to take Nuremberg, the Nuremberg trial sort of as the birthplace of inter- um, individual criminal responsibility for international crimes, then you can see that it has always been the plan of the prosecutor of Nuremberg to also put uh, the industrialists on trial. Um, uh, Alfred Krupp was supposed to be on trial even in the main main tri- um, in the main main trials. Uh, this didn't turn out f- for different reasons. But then you have the subsequent. Uh, trials and there were several in German industrialists were being indicted, among others also for the provision of uh, and manufacture of arms. So what can you learn from that? Uh, whenever there is a conflict, economic actors usually do play a role, and it is absolutely necessary if you want to understand the full dynamic of a certain uh, conflict that you also look at the the, the economic actors. 
And we've been looking at the Nuremberg uh, uh, trials, we've been looking at the Cyclone B case, that's the uh, chemicals that have been provided to Auschwitz. We've been looking at uh, the Charles Taylor judgment, for example, hmm. that has also been dealing. Why Charles Taylor? That, Charles because Taylor, of uh, diamonds or, or what? Charles Taylor has also been convicted uh, of aiding and abetting crimes by providing arms, by pro- uh, through the provision of arms to the rebel forces in Sierra, Le- Sierra Leone. So he was the former president of Liberia on trial at the Sierra Leone Special Court, and one of the charges that he was convicted of was aiding and abetting by supplying arms. I also remember Perisic at the Yugoslav Tribunal. He was also aiding and abetting arms. So exactly. Example. So this is one another example. And then you have... Uh, two Dutch cases that are quite important. Oh, Koenhoven. Exactly, yeah. and Van Enrat. So Koenhoven has been also, he's been, uh, he helped providing arms to Charles Taylor, who then uh, passed them on to the rebel forces in Sierra Leone. And um, Van Enrat has been uh, providing chemicals that are essential for the production of mustard gas to um, Saddam Hussein in the 1980s um, and uh, it was the Dutch prosecutors were able to prove that those um, chemicals were used and then the mustard gas was used against Kurds. What you're showing me or what you know the list that you've you come out still feels like a few individuals to me or, or, or do you see it as a as a march to the future. Of course, as of now, it's just very individual cases. And to some extent, you can also say it's only the rogue businessmen that are being put on trial. And it is not the white color industry, you know, industries that are being um, tried. So that's what you want to try to change with this is actually put the focus on, if I remember correctly, Airbus, um, BAE, uh, Dassault. I mean, some really big names. Yes. So we want to point out... um, also potentially seeing ordinary business that seems so legal as equally potentially also be involved in criminal activities and that we just cannot close our eyes from this. Um, As ECCHR, we've been trying to bring those kind of cases for the last 10 years. And a lot of times what you encounter with prosecutorial offices and, uh, you know, also even in wider public is this feeling of, well, but, you know, those are good businessmen, um, you know, generally business is a neutral thing. They cannot know. They do not know. Why should they know what's being done with the products they, they, they sell? Isn't that a quite legitimate argument? I mean, they, they don't necessarily know. That's not, their, that's not their business. Well, and I would say that is one of the assumptions that I think are quite wrong because they are in the business of selling arms. And that means they a lot of times have very close ties to the governments they are selling their arms to. And um, they are quite well informed about all the conflicts ongoing in this world. If you're doing business with the Congo for 25 years, obviously, you know what's going on there. But they just don't consider it their responsibility to care. No. So I think and then and I think that's something we really want to change. Isn't it also, though, that often, particularly with arms export, because you have to have export licenses and things in order to be able to do this, that they're very often like um, like um, 
a wing of uh, the foreign policy of particular governments. I mean, they're the ones, in fact, who are saying, yes, go ahead, sell this stuff to our allies. Yes, so I do think you need to see the role of governments, also of the European governments that um, are giving the license and that have an interest in those arms deals. You need to see this complementary to the company's responsibilities. But um, And I think the role and the responsibility of European governments has been discussed a lot and there's also uh, like in the UK this procedure against um, against the licensing process of the UK government so I think there's been quite some attention uh, on on their role and on, the, on their responsibilities but I, th um, you, I think it's important to argue that also business themselves have their own responsibility for several reasons one is just because you have a license it doesn't mean that you have to export It's just an option for you to export. Secondly, a lot of times those licenses last for several years. So, you know, a situation may, may even be probably fine in one year. Three years later, a situation may look very differently. So I think companies have to constantly assess um, the risks of their business. Um, um, and also, you know, especially what we can see from the UK proceedings um, um, is that the decision-making process in the governments on whether or not to grant a license is quite sloppy. And we would argue it does not, um, it does not at all uh, live up to the legal standards of international criminal law. They don't consider a lot of the normative standards that should be applied. And so I don't think a company can rely on such a license. Um, and you're trying to use the channel of the International Criminal Courts because countries like the UK and France are members of the court because, as we know, Yemen, Saudi Arabia, United Arab Emirates are not. So it's not to do with what's happening. It's not because you have any access to the court because of what's happening there. You would have access to the court through those major powers. It's really the court, you're really trying to use the court to bite back on them. They're some of the major supporters of the court. Well, if the court wants to be credible, and if those countries that are supporting the court want to be credible, they must be willing to apply the standards of the International Criminal Court also to citizens of their countries. And I think that is what we've been calling for always, you know, so there cannot be double standards in international criminal law. So, it, you know, you may go after uh, the war criminals um, all over the world, but you must be also looking at the responsibility of Western actors. And um, we do think, you know, there's we have some arguments to argue that the court has jurisdiction over, uh, a you know, individual corporate actors here in Europe, since the, if they're European nationals, plus they're based in Europe. So we would be also arguing that they're acting from European grounds. And that is so they're acting from the within the jurisdiction of the court, uh, while the effects of their actions may occur outside. Um, um, so, and I think it's very important for the court to look to look at Western actors and to and finally also start looking at uh, economic actors, which they have um, promised for quite a while in their policy papers, but they've really not done so. Well, that was my other point. Was you know this is really quite untested ground for the ICC. Yes, there's there's been lip service, as you said, but they haven't actually done anything. Is that also why you think it's important to push it now? 
Yes, I think that is. I think it is about time um, that um, also with this growing that the ICC looks at the corporate actors, but also with the, in general the growing momentum on this question of business and human rights, and um, that we really start to um, put efforts into serious cases and to to be really testing liability questions. So you've been working in this field, business and human rights. It sounds like for quite some time. How long? Uh, 10, 11 years, yeah. And do you see that there is a particular change in the way that it is now being seen around the world? Yeah, I mean, I I would say there are different levels of the discourse. I think in countries of the global south, I do see that there's more of a momentum to say, you know, we are not willing to take this anymore and um, we will... We're also not willing to buy into any of this corporate social responsibility and voluntary standards things. And uh, we do want to bring legal actions. I think that's what you can see more and more. I think in general, there are more legal and quite innovative actions being brought worldwide. And then, of course, you have the, the, the discourse on the international level around the UN guiding principles of business and human rights. And Can you just explain those a little bit? Yeah, the UN guiding principles on business and human rights are um, soft, I would say, soft law principles. So what force do they have? Just a bit of moral authority? Well, I would say, and I think they they claim that for themselves, they're, they're not just voluntary standards, but yes, they are also not enforceable. Um, but what they did create, at least internationally, they did create sort of this common language, which means that companies have their own obligations to respect human rights and to install processes within their business activities to analyze risks of their business and which are the risk areas in which they may um, contribute or cause human rights violations. And um, I think that's, it's, you know, there's, it, you, there can be some criticism to it, but I think in general the concept is not is is quite useful, especially if you want to talk. Also now here, if you think about the arms trade, you know you can't talk about. So you know, have you been considering what can't be the effects of arms that you're exporting to a certain country that is involved in a, in a conflict? And I think that is something obviously that companies so far refuse to to look at. What makes me a little bit hopeful is one case that is the Lafarge case in, in, in France. Yeah, I have heard about that. Can you explain a little bit more what, what the, the basis of that is? Yes, so that is, um, that is the first time that an, at a national court, a multinational company, and as such, as a legal entity, has been indicted um, for aiding and abetting um, crimes against humanity. And also there have been there are indictments against five top managers of and, the company. And what's interesting there is that actually putting a multinational as an entity as a as a as something that can be put on trial in itself. Exactly. I think that is really important. And equally important I also think is that the individuals have been put on trial. But it, and that company, what the allegation is that um, Lafarge has um, had a cement factory in Syria, northern Syria, and they kept that factory running while the civil war started to evolve. But cement, cement, I mean, it can be used for, you know, it's used for a lot of very important building purposes. Isn't that their argument? Um, that is their argument. And we would say, yes, but you, at some point they could not escape 
paying several of the rebel groups. The individuals are indicted for endangering um, the lives of their staff, um, also for financing of terrorism uh, under the French law. And we're advocating also for, but this has not been done yet, for um, also um, aiding and abetting crimes against humanity. The company as such, as a legal entity, has been indicted for aiding and abetting crimes against humanity. These charges have been challenged. Um, we, in the second instance court, um, uh, dropped the charges, but we're now before the Supreme Court. I think the importance of this case is to show, well, exactly that those legal businesses, the multinationals, they can be involved in conflicts and they can be fueling conflict and they can be held to account. And, um, and so, and it's not just this individual rogue businessman that I was speaking before of before, but it's official managers, top managers that may incur criminal liability in such a case. To put a counter-argument, if you take this to its ultimate kind of absurdity, I've lived in countries where there has been conflict going on. I've had to report that. And I have been incredibly grateful that Coca-Cola has carried on producing and carried on getting its bottles out into the most remote places. You can always find something to drink there, you know, some kind of sweet carbonated drink which you really need in the, in the middle of some horrible environment. Are they not the kind of people then who, under your way of looking at the world, could end up being put on trial for supplying poor little journalists like me with Coca-Cola at the end of the world? No, I don't think so. <laughs> uh, there, are quite, there are clear limits to, to the liability because we're not saying you can, under no circumstances, act in conflict situations. So let's... Um, We've also been bringing a case against Nestle headquarters um, because of the murder of a trade unionist in Colombia. And what we're saying, so if you have a conflict like Colombia that's going on for 40 years and longer, um, obviously we are not expecting companies to never enter Colombia and not to do business because at all and not to produce anything there because obviously that's also what a population needs. Yeah, it wouldn't be very fair. Yeah. But what we are asking Nestle to do is to do a proper analysis of the conflict and to do a proper analysis of where do they stand as a company as with their top management, with their middle man management, you know, where are they located in that conflict? And they just really need to make sure that they're not contributing to this conflict. And um, they need to be aware that if they are an employer in that region, um, they are giving one, of course, job opportunities. At the same time, they also give raise to legitimate trade union efforts. Because whenever you're an employer, it's legitimate that workers try to unionize. Well, but and then if you're in a conflict situation where trade unionists are particularly targeted, you really need to make sure that your management does not contribute to the targeting of trade unionists. And you need to make sure that your management is not having ties with paramilitary um, uh, groups and sort of encourages them or you know in any way facilitates the attacks on 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 trade unionists so you know and i think what we are asking companies to say you're profiting and from globalized business and you're profiting from globalized economy which takes a lot you need a, a lot of knowledge a lot of uh, technical you know uh, um, uh, expertise to organize global business but it's really about time that you also think about 
the social side of what you're doing and to also consider the political and human rights impacts that you may have acting there. And so that, that sounds at first, and I think most managers are like, oh, that's so complicated. And yes, it may be complicated to analyze the Colombian uh, civil war and to analyze where is your management at. But at the same time, there's so many other tricky questions in doing global business that I think that's something that they really have to deal with. And we can expect them to deal with. What would you, what do you expect to actually happen practically? Well, we do hope um, that the Office of the Prosecutor at the ICC will seriously look at um, our allegations um, and um, that they will, um, we would hope that they would start a preliminary investigation, that they just really start to gather their own evidence. I think there's a lot of um, uh, information they could try to gather from European governments on the exact exports, on exact export dates, you know, and um, on the goods being exported. Um, they can do a lot of investigation into corporate decision-making processes um, to actually pin down who is making the decision to export on a day X um, and who is not involved in those decisions. I think there's a lot of obscurity, so where we also cannot really pinpoint the responsibility finally. And we would really hope that they make those steps to, to look into this further. And are you also looking uh, on the national level to take this forward in any individual countries? Yes, I think for the ICC, we do see the role in what is called positive complementarity in the sense that, of course, also the ICC could encourage prosecutors at the national level to look at certain cases and then at certain case scenarios. Um, we have been bringing with Italian organizations um, a criminal complaint against RWM Italia, it's, um, it's a Rheinmetall uh, subsidiary um, producing bombs in, uh, in Sardinia. And we have proof that one of those bombs manufactured there have been used in the bombing of, um, of a house of civilians in Yemen. So remnants have been found there. So that's for sure it's been used. Um, this case is quite stuck. And uh, so we do hope that also probably the ICC will actually encourage a prosecutor and the judges now currently reviewing the case to, to continue their investigations. It's a horrible question, but how do you rate your chances of, of success? I mean, what's, uh, what's, you've been working on this for so long. Um, though, you know, how do you see this one in comparison with others that, that you've been working on? Well, first of all, we need to talk about what is success. <laughs> I don't think necessarily success means that anyone ends up in jail. Um, so I would think, well, the first step of success would be the opening of an investigation. Um, success would be that there's a real serious debate about the legal standards and also probably about sort of having a wide interpretation uh, on 25.3c, uh, the mains rare part. Um, um, success would also be if national prosecutors would start looking into this case. And um, so our chances of that, I, w I don't know, I guess um, they're good. <laughs> but isn't the other part, uh, the, uh, the mens rea what in Latin, you know, with the actual sort of what's, what's the thought process behind or however you want to put it? How do you, how do you see that? 
Yeah, so that is apparently very debated because in the um, in the text of um, of the statute it says that there um, there must be a perp for the purpose of. So um, the aider and the better must be doing that for the purpose of. And the question is, debate is, does that mean that the aider and the better must have the same purpose or the same uh, willingness to com to commit the main crime? Or could you interpret it in a way that he needs to be doing his actions, his contribution to the crime with the purpose of contributing? So in this case, it would be something like, is it that they can say our main purpose was just to make some money and we had no purpose to uh, kill those civilians out there? Is that the kind of def defense or exactly. the kind of I think alternative? That is, exactly, that can be the defense. And then we would say, well, but you must be interpreting for the purpose of is that if you are purposefully deliver arms because that's what you want to do that's your business and you know that there's a good chance that those arms are being used for the commission of war crimes we would say this is sufficient for meeting that standard so we would say sort of this act you need to have the purpose for the action itself delivery of arms and only knowledge for how those arms are being used. And then um, you can, there has been quite um, a lot of um, civil society um, outcries about arms trade. So you can l have a look at you know, general shareholder meetings. There have been a lot of companies have been confronted with, with what's going on in Yemen. So as we feel there have been a lot of international reports on the situation in Yemen. Um, there have been journalists writing about this and also interviewing or at least bringing the topic to attention of companies so we feel that there's also quite some reason to say it is diff it will it's a difficult defense to say we didn't know what's ongoing in Yemen um, so we would say they had knowledge of what's happening and so that then would suffice the mental element we are obviously on a quite we are using a, a legal argument that is you know quite on one side of the debate but we would say you know uh, any other interpretation of this article would mean that the article in itself is you know, would be almost irrelevant because when is the situation that you could actually uh, use this to to capture and a contribution to 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 a crime, then as aiding and abetting? So that's our interpretation of this. So Steph, what did you make of all of that? I found it um, quite difficult to believe that in the end that the ICC would take this up. But she, she had me convinced that this was something that was possible to take to the ICC. Yeah, my takeaway from this is that there's really a myriad of different ways that they're trying to get companies to account, uh, but really different ways and trouble in how to get them in front of a court, whether you're looking at these companies as corporations and getting a corporation to a court or getting a manager of a corporation as an individual to a court. So at the ICC, that would be... You would have to have an individual. So, so yeah, and it it was interesting to me the idea that they're trying to get the ICC involved at this stage because all the other strategic litigation that we look at is in national settings and as you said, sometimes to do with corporations. It's sometimes to do with a uh, is less often to do with a specific individual. I mean, it feels like this world is really exploding. That everybody is trying to take somebody to court, find, trying to find an in somewhere. Yeah, and that seems very much the, the way to find an in. She names those two Dutch cases. That, that I followed very closely, the Kauwenhoven for Liberia and blood timber and the Frans van Anraad who supplied medical uh, bases for uh, making mustard gas to 
uh, Iraq. We'd better do a podcast about uh, those cases sometime, see if we can find somebody. I would love to. But what I didn't manage to ask her was, well, I'm sure there were questions I should have asked her. What should I have asked her? Well, I think you you covered a lot, but there's also so much unclear about uh, what she says. And I really wonder if, even if they get individuals like directors of companies on the stand, if you don't kind of fall into the same problem that we see at the ICC with political leaders, namely, how do you get, how do you connect the people to the top to the the things on the ground and whether you don't have the same problem with command responsibility and what does somebody at the top know of what's actually going on at at, uh, at the bottom well you've just given the defense their um the opportunity to uh to say what they think uh, their I'm defense should be I, i'm available for uh, for uh, <laughs> as a no what it's not called a counselor it's a, as a consultant as a consultant i'm available as a consultant but the other thing i spotted when i was listening back to it is i absolutely failed on the asymmetrical haircuts I did not ask the right questions. I'm really sorry. So I thought, well, let's be self-indulgent because I know that from the readers we have that they do enjoy listening to it. So let's uh, let's ask you what you've recently seen or heard that you really recommend. Oh, my goodness. I have to admit that I am in the middle of... um, a lot of training at the moment. So I'm standing in front of people and working really hard. So when I get home at the moment, I am slumping with... um, I'm I'm Netflix uh, stroke Amazon Prime stroke whatever else chilling with something that I'm not even being prepared to admit. Ah. Well, I'm, I'm, I, of course, asked this to get my own recommendations in selfishly because I'm really enjoying this podcast that was recommended to uh, me by actually uh, Molly Quell, who we'll have on our Justice Update as well, um, who recommended the podcast You're Wrong About, which basically looks at media kind of events and then goes back mostly in the 90s and goes back and says, this was reported this way, but if you look at it, really, what is it? And they did a whole series about the O.J. Simpson trial and so that and how much the media got wrong all the time how the framing is how manipulated we all are absolutely recognize this and also how uh, in a way how women always get kind of shafted in in the wrong roles or get misinterpreted uh, what they do and um that that whole binging of the you're wrong about on the oj simpson trial led me to also binge on the netflix series about uh the oj simpson trial so i'm i'm deep in oj land these days okay well we'll put links to both of those on the uh, show notes and uh, see you again soon see you bye this podcast was created and presented by janet anderson and stephanie van den berg you can find show notes and additional blogs on asymmetricalhaircuts.com it is recorded in the hague humanity hub home to a community of innovators in the field of peace justice development and humanitarian action music is by audionautics.com And the show is available on every major podcast service, so please subscribe, give us a rating, and spread the word.